Welcome to episode 58 of the Hard Truth About B2B Commerce. I'm your co-host, Isaiah Bollinger, and I'm here with uh, Tim. Hey, everybody. Timothy Peterson. Welcome to 58. I'm glad we're this far along in the uh, podcast. And uh, I usually say this to Isaiah and, and our guests at the beginning uh, in recent episodes. I've heard from other people yet again who claim to have listened to either most or all of our podcasts. And that's remarkable. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you and, you know, keep spreading the word. Can we get uh, like a, can we get like a guest shout out? Like who are these guests? Actually, so you know can... what? I'm going to, I'm going to pull their names for the next time. I'll do that. Okay. and mention a few of these people. So <laughs> they're only a, a can, like, ta- tag them in social media, make them feel like, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're paying attention. We're paying attention. Of course. I think it's the way to do it. <laughs> uh, I do know Mark Friedman. I should mention Mark Friedman is um, one of the folks who also has a podcast uh, called the uh, marketing playbook. Uh, he says that he has listened to every one of our episodes wow. while he's gone uh, running or doing other things. So I'm very happy uh, to mention him. Shout out to Mark Friedman, but uh, I'll mention other names as we go ahead uh, as well. Really good for him. Um, let me give two quick shout outs to our uh, sponsors. We are uh, very happy to mention Punch Out To Go, a global B2B integration company specializing in connecting commerce business platforms with e-procurement and ERP applications. Punch-Out-To-Go's iPaaS technology seamlessly links business applications to automate the flow of purchasing data. With their solution, you can immediately reduce integration complexities for punch-out catalogs, electronic purchase orders, invoices, and other B2B sales order automation documents to accelerate your business results. Thank you to -to Punch-Out-To-Go. And we have an additional sponsor, Balance. Balance is a B2B e-commerce payment solution that works well for you and for your buyers, offers a seamless one-click checkout for almost any payment method, including ACH, wire, checks, cards, even terms. Uh, It's used by leaders in B2B e-commerce, and it's as easy as buying a shirt from Amazon. Check them out at getbalance.com. Book a session. Tell them what your needs are. They are the first dedicated payment platform for B2B e-commerce, 100% tailored to your needs. Thanks again to our sponsor, Balance. And Isaiah, back to you. I'm very excited about today's episode. Yeah, it's been it's been great to have these sponsors. Actually, Balance has come up on, on some new calls that I've been you know talking to folks about. So uh, it's it's becoming more and more relevant. Um, but yeah, so speaking of a potentially new sponsor, uh, you guys are <laughs> you guys are are a, a great a great company in the B two B space, and and your background um, is very heavily tied to B two B. So thank you, Andrew Johnson. Um, tell us about Shelf Aware and your background. I think could we could we call it kind of like the Amazon Go of B two B? Is that like the best way to? That's probably the best way to summarize it. Yeah, Amazon Go. Of, of B2B. So we're trying to create convenient store concepts on factory floors so that blue collar folks can do what they do best, which is manufacture quality goods quickly. And, and um, that's our, that's our goal. Um, so yeah, you, you set me up for the sponsorship thing. It would be a, a pretty interesting <laughs> sponsorship because when we, we got to talking uh, beforehand, it's clear to me that we're pursuing you know, very similar um, passions in a very similar marketplace and a very similar yeah, with a for very sure. group of folks. So um, we share the same problems. We share the same horror stories. And <laughs> yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. But we're, we're working, you know, somewhat parallel. So I'm not in the software's not really in the e-commerce space where we're an alternative, I, I guess you could say to e-commerce where we're allowing suppliers to certainly work in a more digital way, but uh, it's not an online purchasing experience. It's it's more of a, a collaboration between supplier and consumer that's that hinges around uh, tracking consumers' consumption of goods. So my, my background in this space goes way, way, way back. I tell people uh, that I have 36 years of experience and they all like, what? You know, you're you're not that old. Well, you're right. I'm I'm 36 years old, but I've been doing this my entire <laughs> life. Uh, my entire life. Uh, my dad uh, started a distribution company, industrial distributor of O-rings, gaskets, and seals in 1982, and I was born in 85. And so my entire existence has been wrapped up in this world. And he's a huge believer 
in child labor. So I, I spent a lot of time working <laughs> in the family business. Can, can you, We're going to quote I, you on that for the so sponsorship. I, I'd love to hear child labor. We're, we're pro child labor. <laughs> can you, can you, can you tell us like, and I feel like, um, this is just like a kind of an interesting anecdote for like B2B businesses. Like you don't, you don't see people our age. You're like, you know, I'm going to start an industrial supplies company. Like, you know, you or, you know, me or my generation, you know, in our thirties, right. Like we're not starting in, like, so what, what, what gets someone like your dad to start that kind of company? And like, maybe why, what do you think that was happening back then? I feel like it's not happening now. Right. Like you, you that, know. yeah, that is a great question and a really good observation. One I've spent some time thinking about because I of course have, uh, I have three children. So I've my, and my, I work with in a weird scenario now with my three brother-in-laws. So, uh, only boy and three sisters, three sisters, married entrepreneurial men, and they all now work at this family business. So I do have a unique perspective on that question, but it's a great question. I think if you step back and look at the 10,000 foot view of, of the United States of America, we've encouraged generations of children, um, like us to pursue degrees in liberal arts and not really concentrate or focus on the tangible skills that, that you really have to possess in the B2B marketplace. Things that matter. So yeah, (laughs) things that make the world go round. Yeah. Um, and that's one big, that's one big reason, uh, that you don't see. I think a lot of our generation on the, like right out of the gate, interested in, in pursuing careers in this space. The other reason I think is because the industrial space has done a poor job. It's been underinvested in. Some of it's not its fault. We just have not invested in our manufacturing sector like we should have in the last couple of decades because we outsourced a lot of our manufacturing to other parts of the world. And and because of that underinvestment, it's it's kind of archaic. The landscape in general and industrial is old and dusty and it got left behind. What that means is from from young people looking at it, it's really not very sexy. Yes. Uh, there's very little tech. Uh, there's very little things that they know and love uh, involved yeah. in this space. And so if they want to pursue a job in you know computer programming or IT, that it, it is certainly not high on their list. Ooh, it's really like, should I, should I work at Google or should I work at like... You know, this B to B to B. Yeah. Caterpillar is a good example, but even, even they're probably, you know, they're at least a public company, but a lot of these B2B companies are like your dad or these family run companies that are still running like old ERPs and have like almost no tech. Right. So correct. it's going to, you know, maybe, you know, you might be able to recruit some folks to Caterpillar, but it's going to be even harder if you're like these, you know, small mid-sized guys. So, which kind of, which kind of leads me to, I feel like we're, this is the culmination of what we've been talking about for, for weeks now on this podcast that culturally, and you brought this up to me before the podcast, there's almost going to be this divergence, right? Like some of the B2B companies are going to be able to evolve. They're going to be able to figure out e-commerce. They're going to invest in it. They're going to get the talent, but a lot of them maybe, and, and maybe it's happening now where they should say, Maybe I'm maybe I'm not going to make it, and that leap is going to be too big of a leap to make. Mm-hmm. And they should start thinking about alternative pathways because it's such a giant leap forward. Correct with talent, you know, outsourcing to things like Trellis to buying platforms, mm-hmm. data management, like all the things. It's it's so many different things that people underestimate that you're talking like. I think when you really put the numbers together, you're probably talking millions of dollars of like time and effort. Like, yes, not not yeah. just the platform, mm-hmm. not just the trellis costs, not just the design costs, like the data management, the integrations, the cultural leveling up. Like, the, the I, I really thing. I, I think the cultural thing is probably the biggest hurdle. You, you can't buy culture, and if you have an industrial B two B company that doesn't have the culture to adopt e commerce, like it's just not going to happen overnight. That's a couple of years of yeah. uh, top level management trying to push that culture down. But the problem we were talking about is, is kind of, and I think it's happening right now. I'm of the opinion that the jumping off point is behind us. You either mm. have to, you have to have the pieces in place and you should have jumped in with e-commerce years ago. If you haven't already, you're, you're probably behind the eight ball at this point. Um, and you're looking at a really big uphill climb and it's only going to be possible through uh, help of uh, buy help from companies like Trellis that you could potentially make that leap to a, a, a solid e-commerce offering 
Um, and it's going to be through marketplace extensions like Amazon Business and Shopify. Those are going to be your shortcuts to market. But there's other things you can't buy, and that's company culture. It's SEO rankings. I think you'll be behind the eight ball on, on SEO oh, yeah. and down lead mm-hmm. rankings. Yeah. Those are expensive and Just time. Just digital frankly, marketing. Yeah, digital yeah. marketing in general is is hard and takes a lot of time. There's no and like, it takes a, and takes a yeah. culture. You have to have yes, a lot of people exactly. that are okay with being on camera or yeah. – um, being okay with putting out audio content, writing I mean, content, writing yeah, descriptions. Blogs are so much work. Yeah, yeah. So all of that culture, if you don't have it, you're basically at this point where you either need to be very honest with yourself and your company and say, we're not there and we never will be. So your alternatives then are do something else better, like create another differentiator that's not e-commerce, you know, and that's where Shelfware's at. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what what I was going to jump in on is, you know, I'm I'm a little older, maybe I'm closer to your father's age, perhaps, but I, I you know, I started my first business in the '80s, and there were, it was very a very weird time. There were a lot of shakeups among, you know, traditional manufacturing, uh, you know, concerns, and a lot of uh, distributors rose because the manufacturers were breaking up or couldn't figure out what to do any longer. Like they didn't know how much to invest in technology. So the first business I started was a printing business because there were printers who were basically just shutting down left and right with their traditional presses. And I, you know, decided I would design using Macs, you know, ooh, you know, big innovation, and then jump ahead of those people. And it became something that lasted for years and I kept evolving the business. But it, it's it's just like that. I always say instead of culture, it's almost mindset. Right. Mm-hmm. You have to have the mindset first and build the culture second. Right. You have to say, you know, how do I innovate? What do I do to innovate? How do I stay ahead? And then you build the culture around it for those companies to succeed. Yeah. 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 So it's a it's a long process and it's it's where we find ourselves today. And then you throw COVID in the mix and it makes for even murkier waters and what to do next. And um, you have stout competitors. We were, we were talking about Amazon business. Um in our previous conversations, how they're creeping. You got a lot of B2C companies that are really good that are creeping further and further into the industrial space. And that's yeah. of a large mm-hmm. concern. And I've been saying this. I think it's actually easier for a B2C company that's a good B2C company selling you know, on, on Amazon and Shopify to move into B2B because they have the culture. Sure. All they need to do is, all right, create tiered pricing, create a wholesale program, offer discounts, offer, you know, figure out free shipping, figure out like a couple of operational things. Now they can move into slightly lower, larger average order value online. You know, maybe it's a thousand dollars online or instead of selling a hundred bucks, they can start to move into the thousands and then they just, it, they keep progressing from there. Whereas to your point, if you don't have the culture, it's a lot harder to have this super manual organization all of a sudden become, you know, e-commerce first. Yeah, It's a much harder yeah. leap. Yeah, and I've heard some pushback from. Um, so I do some public speaking. I'm out there on on the speaking circuit, talking to industrial distributor executives all the time, and I have had some pushback when I air this opinion out uh, from the stage. You know, I'll have people come back and say, you know, Amazon's not really a threat to us because we sell an engineered product. Um, and of course, I come from an engineered product background. O rings and gaskets are very highly engineered, and there's lots of specifications. But honestly, I really believe. You it, it, that has bought the industrial market and some independent distributors. It has bought them some time because they have been able to hide behind the intricacies and some of the black magic and uh, you know specs involved and and some of the regulatory barriers involved and just any old B two C jumping into their B two B space. But it's only bought them a couple years max. Because the internet, all the information out is out there. I mean, these can figure it out. I mean, you can Google this stuff and and self-teach yourself, you know, not necessarily get certified necessarily, but you can, or or even necessarily get the right sourcing, but you can certainly create alternatives pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an investor in a, in an, uh, in an AR, uh, augmented reality kind of, uh, visual, design startup and they just released a new feature they're very very early stage mostly focused on shopify right now but they've gotten going gone to big commerce and i think they could start to move into industrial things like that and the feature that they they do 3d models very quickly they're they're kind of like democratizing that making it a little bit cheaper and easier to get up and running with 3d and ar but they just launched a feature within the 3d model you can link to pictures so let's imagine 
a complex thing, right? Industrial thing. And then within that, you could link to the different parts of that and have it be this whole interactive thing. And they're bringing that cost down pretty dramatically and making it basically a plugin to e-commerce platforms. Yeah. So like yeah. all someone has to do is get that plugin, get the data, link to all the things, and then you could kind of like go online and, and basically like interact with a very complex engineered thing and all the different pieces of it. That stuff's like already here. It's going to take a little longer for like companies to get all their data online. And, but whoever's the, the first mover in the, that space is just going to dominate. And you know, else. there, there are yeah. a lot of people already circling in that space. I think uh, we may have even talked about this in the podcast before. There's another company called Clixelate. And I think they started in the medical imaging space, yeah. right? medical imaging. And they would teach people like, you know, different angles, like how to do surgeries in med school and whatever. But then they moved out of that. And now, for example, I think they have a partnership with Bosch uh, and they are work around engines. So yeah. you can take a look at the engines. And so you're, angles. A, yeah. Yeah, you're a mechanic. And what you do is you get the software from Clixelate. It goes all over the engine. And you literally tap on the screen. It's a tap and go. And it tells you what the part is and exactly, you know, where you get it and whatever. So it's it's a fascinating next step. It's exactly what you're saying, Isaiah. We're so close to just making it that easy for yeah. anyone to do what you're talking uh, about. Uh, and like you said, Andrew, it's it's just really the data. Like the, once the data gets online and it's more easily accessible and there's going to be vendors that will sell the data Mm -hmm. And there, once more of that's you know ready to go, the barriers down. And the barriers down, you know. Yeah. yeah, game on. So we, as a family business, we hit our jumping off point in in 2012, and it was really for us all about the data. We, my my oldest brother in law Adam, he started to. We had a good friend of ours who um, was a data architect, and he came into our small business just after hours and was helping us with an ERP adoption. So we were adopting a new ERP. And our good friend, the data architect said, you boys, the four of us, you would benefit greatly by doing the ERP data migration yourselves. Do not hire it out through the ERP company. You need to learn your data. You need to know your data intimately and you need to do the ERP uh, migration uh, importation of your own data. Because after that process, you'll be much better off. And we listened to him and he came in and helped us with the whole process. But that that twenty that 2012 ERP adoption launched us down this path of incremental innovation where after that process, our friend was right. We knew our data. We understood our data. We knew how our data drove every transaction. We knew how the data was organized, where it was stored, how to access it, how to manipulate it. Uh, and after that, my oldest brother-in-law, Adam, he he started to learn how to manipulate the data using uh, Microsoft SQL code and then Visual Basics and later Java. And all of those pieces came together. And he was he was a, a head of major in physical education. He had a master's degree in physical education. And he wanted to be a coach, ended up coming to work for my dad. And uh, he's got just the perfect mindset to be a computer programmer. But with the help of our friend who taught him some stuff, and then he learned the rest of it basically on YouTube. He'd Google... Uh, how to do an interjoin Microsoft SQL interjoin table, and and, and it would, he'd find somebody doing that, it with a screen share. That's how half the developers in the world pretty much learn development. Like it's not like you know your college education helps, but most of the time you just Google stuff, Stack Overflow, you just learn on the job. But yeah, um, if you don't mind, what, what was the ERP you guys adopted in 2012? What was so the... in, yeah in 2012 we we went to Epicor uh, Profit 21. Okay. <laughs> Which is a really common distribution yep. uh, yeah. software, yeah, and it runs on behind the scenes Microsoft SQL database. And most of our in innovations I'm talking about were mostly done ODBC, so to connect direct to our database. And um, we wrote like our own analytics package to to look at our own, you know, you could say like our vitals of our company, and deliver the vitals to our company management in you know report formats or triggered formats. Uh, we did all that through Microsoft SQL outside of, of our ERP system. Um, ended up creating our own kind of wireless warehouse system because we weren't happy with what Profit 21 offered. And so we, we did that by the using a mobile app, Android mobile app as a user interface that then you know spoke directly to our ODBC, to our ERP system on the back end. So it's all um, uh, it was all like a really long multi-year process from 2012 to 2015. 
And then somewhere around that time too, we, we launched our own e-commerce experience. And that was where we came to the realization of, we can't do this. We, we had a great, we, I mean, uh, the company website is oringsales.com. And if we would add the forethought to turn that into a online outlet for all things O-rings, you know, back in the late nineties, early two thousands, we'd be a totally different company today, but we didn't. And we waited way too long. Um, so we ended up jumping in with Amazon marketplace in like 2015, leveraging our supply chain to sell B2C products as opposed to B2B products through Amazon. And it's about a million dollars in revenue. Yeah. Wow. So uh, I'm curious, have you guys looked at, um, I don't know what, what version are you guys on on profit 21? I don't, I don't even know what version. Okay. Um, they, they actually built an integration to Magento, um, works. Okay. We have a, a, a customer on it. Um, so you guys might want to explore that. It's pretty fully integrated. I'm not sure like they're going to charge you and you have to pay for all the pain of that, but <laughs> yeah, so you're gonna, you're probably going to tell me, and this is probably, it was a foolish choice perhaps, but we started kind of, um, Frankensteining profit 21 so much that, um, we kind of came to a head with Epicor support staff and we, they, they didn't really want to support some of the features we had bolted on and built ourselves. And so we got mad and we, we said, fine, well, we're done paying for support. So we jettisoned our support of our, wow. That's a whole other episode. Yeah. That's another episode. The question is, uh, would you still, would the integration they built even still work for you? I don't know. Like probably not, probably not, not. but you know, it's worth, it's worth looking into. That's a whole nother episode of what not to do. I'm Uh, I'm a big believer in build versus buy. If you, if it's good, right? Like you, if you run into issues, you know, trying to build your own integration to, to, to Magento would probably be really expensive. So if you can buy theirs and it works, you know, yeah, great. It works, it works for one of our customers. You know, I'm not saying it'll work for you guys, but anyways, the the takeaway from why I said that is don't, don't get in a fight with your, your main ERP provider. That's a bad idea. Honestly, (laughs) terrible idea. That's why you're focused on shelf aware. So tell us about Yeah, Right, right, right. So, (laughs) so then, yeah, good segue. So in, in 2015, uh, we, since we knew we weren't going to create this epic and we're kind of too late to the party to create this epic uh, B2B e-com solution around oringsales.com, uh, we had, had started this Amazon Marketplace thing to cater to some B2C products and just leverage our supply chain. And it was growing nicely. But we knew as an industrial distributor, like if we really wanted to grow our business significantly, we needed we still needed a differentiator and e-commerce wasn't going to be it because we'd waited we'd waited too long. So and you guys uh, felt you waited too long in like 2016, 2017. So oh, you're yeah. like that's mm-hmm. crazy because most people are like they don't think they're too late now. <laughs> yeah, and the so. reason we thought that was because we um I mean we we'd done a lot of our own homework and had looked around. We were we were we've been around the O-ring marketplace for a long time and it is quite the niche and that's what you'll find in a lot of these industrial distribution product verticals. They're very very niche. So everybody knows everybody and and we knew everybody in the O-ring marketplace and we knew this one guy this one guy, Marty, had done a great job uh, from an e-com perspective of capturing an e-com marketplace for O-rings. And he already had it all set up. And it was great. And we loved him. And he's a great guy. And he seems to run a tight ship. So we're like, we really, we're never going to, we're never going to beat him. Like, we can't <laughs> catch like, up. We're, he's we're already like ranking number one for O-ring yeah, gas dude, he was like, really early on Google yep. AdWords. His story is also fascinating. If you ever yeah. want to have another guest in the O-ring Yes, stage. please, uh, please introduce him. I will introduce you because his story is fascinating. He went <laughs> that, from being like a paintball. He was running a paintball course <laughs> and they sold a lot of O-rings for paintball guns. And then something happened and, and the paintball course was going under. And, and so they just like tripled down on e-commerce for O-rings. And, That's um, amazing. He's got a fascinating story, but we knew we weren't going to catch up with him. And so we launched Shelfware in 2015. It's a vendor managed inventory service, and it's a way for industrial distribution to set themselves apart. If you don't have e-commerce, you can at least offer your customers a highly collaborative way to do business that will drive value into their organization by eliminating the need for them to cut you purchase orders. So we're, we're automating the supply chain process, the purchase order process, uh, by driving replenishment of industrial products based on pure consumption at the factory floor. So when the products leave the inventory area, more more on the way, basically in, in real time. Um, and so we launched that in 15 as a beta. My brother, again, wrote all the software um, internally. It's mostly like Visual Basics was the interface. And then there's just Microsoft SQL code in the back end. 
we tied it directly to Profit 21 and actually used Profit 21 as our as our basically random number generator to generate a lot of the um, transaction data in the background. And launched it in 15, picked up like some huge chunks of business by advertising a, a software as a service, basically. So we'd go to large manufacturers, consumers of O-rings and gaskets who historically had, you know, one or two purchasing people who were basically running a, a reverse auction. They would bid out parts of their in, industrial O-ring supply chain. And they had a lot of spend, maybe a million dollars. And they'd split it between 10 or 15 different industrial O-ring suppliers that had the brand names they wanted. Uh, and But we'd walk in and say, hey, we'll run your whole supply chain autonomously. We promise we run it really, really lean and we'll never stock you out of product because we have real-time visibility on what's on your shelf. Um, and that that sales pitch worked over and over again. And uh, this is another funny moment of realization when you do this kind of stuff. All of a sudden, you, you don't really stop a whole, whole lot when you're like in a fast sprint to innovate and look around. And we we didn't. We hardly came up for air. Uh, but at some point, something just smacks you in the face. And and this would have been like 2017. We had picked up in the last couple of years using Shelfware, picked up huge chunks of business, million dollars at a time. Yeah, and my big, dad big, was big huge, sales, big sales, yeah. huge contracts, and so when when and just for perspective, when I started working for my dad in twenty, when all my brother in laws and I started working together in twenty twelve, we were like three and a half million in revenue, um, and and this by is the, the distribution company, or, yeah, the O ring yeah. distribution company is running yeah. about three and a half million in revenue. By the time we got done with launching Shelfware and picking up new business, we were doing like we were knocking on the door like ten or probably nine or 10, maybe 11 million. And so fast paced growth in the industrial distribution space means huge inventory onboarding. So we're, you know, you pick up a million dollar customer, oftentimes we'd have to, to outlay a quarter million dollars in inventory costs to support the physical yeah, just product the, supply chain. Yeah. And, and you don't um, get that million dollars instantly, right? So right, it all kind of spools up and it's based on product sales and you can't sell something you don't have. And so we'd have to go out and buy uh, we pick up a million dollar supply chain contract and we'd have to go out and buy a quarter million dollars of inventory. So that those those big tickets started smacking us in the face. We're like, man, okay, two things. Number one, obviously the service is very, very valuable and there's a huge demand for it in the industrial marketplace. And number two, we can't keep growing like this as, as an O-ring distributor because we're broke. Like my brothers and I were broke as a joke. Our, our entire paychecks and distribution money was going right back to the shelf on inventory uh, purchases. And so that's when we, in 2017, decided to to launch it as, and this is also really weird, but we decided to launch it as a software as a service, which is kind of rare in the industrial marketplace. Um, it's more of a, a consumer type of, of structure, but it's a software hardware as a service. We license the system and equip independent suppliers to go run it in their own product vertical with their own customers, wherever they want to go. And and how uh, how 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 many people are using it now? Like, what's the? Yeah, so we have um, let's see, we have six industrial distributors that are um, licensed and running around the country selling it. Um, it's installed at dozens of factories of, across the country. Some of our um, installations are pretty crazy because, like, um, our our very first adopter is a gearbox manufacturer in Kansas City. They have uh, applied the shelfware product um, to four of their inbound suppliers. So they're actually, it's one installation, but it's four supply chains feeding wow. the one consumer. So it's kind of interesting. It tends to just spider out inside these large facilities and they start to get other industrial suppliers to use and adopt shelfware. And we can just uh, push it to the next supplier, to the next product vertical. Uh, and they're adding their fifth. They're in the process of adding their fifth right now. So they'd be using Shelfware to, to manage and automate five separate supply chains from five independent suppliers who don't see each other's data, except the consumer can see everybody. So you, uh, you've mentioned that you know, it's RFID, uh, right? So uh, there, are, there are companies I'm aware of that are more in the consumer space that, for example, that are doing fashion, beauty, uh, high-end jewelry, this sort of thing, where individual items or small packages are, you know, are, are tracked worldwide, and so they're mm -hmm. watching them on the container ships, and you know, they know exactly where things are. Uh, is there a parallel or a very close parallel to that on the B two B side? Um, yeah, the sort of. It kind of depends on the product vertical. 
that we're talking about. So we got started with this whole thing in, in the O-ring vertical. So O-rings are really, really inexpensive. So we launched Shelfware with the idea of, of tracking package quantities as opposed to eaches. Um, but now that we're expanding it to other product verticals, if you sell a product you know, like high-end retail that costs hundreds of dollars or even thousands of dollars, then we can just track it per each. Um, so it just depends on, on what product vertical you're going to, but it's basically an RFID tag that's embedded in product packaging. So it's a peel and stick label that has a really cheap uh, UHF RFID tag behind it. Um, and then the, the hardware sets we deploy, we intentionally chose like all the off the shelf hardware as practitioners, we knew it had to be accessible and inexpensive for industrial distributors to adopt. Like what, then, what's an example of that? Uh, we, we chose like everything we use from a hardware standpoint is zebra, which is just a big household name from hardware provider. Um, and then all the zebra hardware we use, some of it's completely untouched. We don't molest it at all, but like the reader, we actually install an applet that runs on the Java firmware okay. um, of Zebra. So it's very stable. We've kind of just leveraged their existing firmware to run an embedded piece of software. So you, you've kind of built on top of these other other things. Makes sense. You don't need to reinvent the wheel in those areas. And then, no. and then like you said, I mean, it makes sense that like a lot of these products in, in, in this industry uh, or just in B2B in general, it's like, it's not an each, it's like a box of 50 or mm -hmm. like, you're going to RFID, like a box, not probably not <laughs> each individual ring within a bot. Like, so actually right. this is just a, I, I'm just trying to understand myself. How do they even like manage that? Do they wait until the box is completely gone or they, if they use half the box or. Yeah. Good question. Only, yeah. It just, it just depends on how lean they want to run. So if they want to track partial consumption, and count it as this is consumed, they can check out uh, a box off. They can check it out of the system, but continue to pick out of it until it's empty. Uh, that'll get another package in route on resupply to them from their supplier. Uh, or they can wait until it's empty and then check it out. And, and that just means they're going to run, they're going to run a little leaner, a little tighter yeah. ship. Yeah. Gotcha. So it's just, yeah. yeah, these are just little things they can figure out. Yeah, nuances uh, of the system. It's practical, uh, scalable. You can run it how you really want it. It does have lots of flexibility uh, on on how granular you want to get, and it just depends on honestly on the the financials of it. Like how valuable is the product you're tracking? How important is it not to lose one? Uh, and uh, you know, if they're if they're O rings that cost point oh 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 pennies, then who cares? Like you know, just track them by the thousands, and you know, if you yeah, lose a couple exactly. hundred, big deal. It's like fifty cents. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, just, it's a, it's a real lightweight system and we just started deploying it, licensing it and deploying it, um, to uh, other product verticals. And we're kind of just having fun with wherever it goes. It's, it's applicable in any B2B supply chain. And at the end of the day, I mean, I feel like you either have to do, you have to do something really, really well in this space, or you're going to get acquired. Those are your options. Um, do something that's unique and intrinsically valuable, like run a really stout e-commerce outlet or run a differentiator like Shelfware or sell to a, a big guy. Because finding growth, generational growth, organic growth in this industry um, by doing nothing is it's over. Or just the old way of like, hey, we'll call you up or we'll do in like the old way of doing sales is just, it's not going to get the growth that you need. And then no, because the dem demographics are changing. I mean, I think you have to cater to millennials to some degree. Um, and um, they're just not built that way, not programmed that way. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's not even just you, the millennials. You know, it's not even just millennials. I mean, that's a yeah. conversation I had with other folks recently because everyone's adopted, you know, basically every technology in their their day-to-day -day lives. And as I, you know, as I was saying earlier on, you know, I'm an older guy, but I, I do everything on my phone. And if mm -hmm. I can do something on my phone that wasn't able to before, I'm going to do it on my phone. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's just the way, you know, things are done today. I, you know, that's why I have a hundred apps. Right. So if I'm doing something that's B2B and it's available to me to do like, you know, scan a QR code or tap something, I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to bother with a fax machine and dialing a phone or right. whatever yeah. else I had to do in the past. Right? Yeah. 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 And, Culturally, we're we're getting conditioned all towards yeah. that. Yeah, uh, automation, right? Like it's so frustrating to have convenient. to like call up customer service and then like maybe get a hold of someone and then try and fit. Like it's just not a great process if you can go online buy something automate. So I think I think the word e-commerce, like we're uh, you know we really need to get away from the word e-commerce. Just it's really like 
what is it? It's making it uh, as as our our model at Trellis is making commerce simple. It's making you know, transaction. Supply. Yeah, integrated supply automation. It's really automation, right? So like if you're not automating and simplifying the process, whether that's e-commerce, like the traditional, you know, go online and buy it, or some sort of advanced integrations with your customers or shelf aware so that they can go in and get it and it's kind of autonomous. Yeah, you're just you're you don't really have much of a value proposition. You're just you're basically just a warehouse with a bunch of inventory, right? Correct. And, correct. Yeah. And then at that point, it's like, well, if that's all your value, then you probably should sell it before people realize that that's all you're worth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think each year you hang on it, your value as a company would probably, I think, is going down. Yeah. So I have a a, a question for you about a, another business I heard of recently that is it has a related angle to you, and I'm just kind of wondering what you think of it. So uh, people who do construction, right, and people who do facilities maintenance now will uh, tag everything right everything is tagged in a facility so that for example they're they're you know scanning or something or they're aware of a particular bar or an outlet or a pipe or what have you and if it needs maintenance then they know exactly which one and exactly where and exactly where it came from because it's going mm -hmm. to a database and then you know if a repair is being done by a facilities maintenance company they are able to track it instantly and there's no thought process involved. Are you involved in that kind of tagging as well? Or is that something you thought you've guys thought about or? No, we're not involved in that type of tagging. And it's, it's something that we looked at when we built shelf aware. Um, most E like most, most solutions in the vendor managed inventory space focused on a prior technology barcode scanning. Sure. Um, and so we, when we, when we decided we were going to go with, with RFID as opposed to barcodes for our for our primary data collector, we did look at lots of other RFID systems. And I went to several different RFID shows and we picked up on, on where that market was at. And that's asset tracking is basically what you're describing. Yeah. That that has been RFID's focus for the last decade. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are some incredible systems out there in our industry, uh, O-rings and fittings and hose. Parker Hannafin's a giant. Uh, supplier to the whole industry. And Parker Hannafin has some really interesting apps based around RFID that will allow you to like deconstruct a piece of mobile equipment. And then you can actually RFID tag these hoses or RFID tag. It'll tell you exactly what the hose is made of. It's, you know, mm -hmm. 32 foot in length and it has a JIC adapter on one end and a boss adapter or a, you know, MPT fitting on the other. And so those systems are phenomenal. I think they're going to become more and more, um, prolific. Uh, and whether it's a QR code uh, or an RFID tag, there's going to be some sort of um, data point that, that you can access information on, on whatever it is you're, you're looking at. So, so how, um, how are you guys selling this, right? Like um, no one really, you're kind of like a new category, right? Like no one's like Googling, you know, automated, replenishment software for B2B, whatever. I mean, probably not very many. So like you guys kind of almost have to go out there. You got like, how are you guys finding new customers and getting this, getting the name out there? Yeah. Besides yeah, being but, on this podcast and things like yeah, that. This is, obviously <laughs> one, this is obviously this one, this is obviously one avenue. Um, the frank answer is uh, we, in 2017, when we decided to launch Shelfware as an independent company and start licensing to other, other industrial distributors, we had no plan and we did a poor <laughs> job of, we did a very poor job of selling it. Um, I am in charge of obviously selling software and I really kicked myself for not putting myself out there sooner. I, I had a pretty good black book of contacts in our little niche. And I thought I could just, you know, start there. You know, that was a pathetic start because it's such a numbers game. You have to find industrial distributors who have, you know, like we talked about the mindset and culture to adopt something, try something new. Uh, so it's about timing. It's about personalities. It's about um, opportunities that are in front of them. Um, so I should have opened up my, my funnel much, much, much sooner. And how we opened that funnel up was a big debate internally. Okay. Um, since people aren't looking for products like this, because it's basically a new way of doing things, you know, how do you find them? So what we've really landed on is, is three avenues. One is public speaking. So I mentioned that earlier. Uh, I started to put myself out there as a personality that would be willing to get on stage and tell the family business story 
and use the family business story to inspire and educate other companies to do something similar. Get out there, get your hands messy, innovate. You can yeah. do this. Yeah. Uh, so that was one avenue was motivational, educational speaking in a trade association format or a business conference format. Uh, COVID kind of put a damper on that. That That's that's stunk. <laughs> um, the other format is this online format. So I use D- LinkedIn. Digital marketing. And digital yeah. marketing, podcasting, you know, to try and raise awareness for what we're doing and get the word out there. And then the old school approach, which is working pretty well, is just a pound, ground to pound email marketing campaign. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people listening may have gotten emails from a company called Shuffware. It's still tough though, because you're hitting people, no matter what format we do, you're hitting people with a brand new concept, a new approach yeah. to how you're going to do B2B commerce. Uh, and, and they have a hard time wrapping their heads around it. You are up against their former understanding. And so they, they tend to relate it to systems they already know. And so uh, we've tried to We've tried to make analogies around a vending machine because people know industrial vending from companies like Bass and all. They're like, oh, it's, is it like a vending machine? I'm like, well, I mean, in essence, yeah, you're turning a pallet rack, a shelving, floor stock into a virtual vending machine. I mean, we're going to know when you walk away with something much like you would out of a vending machine, but we just don't have the constraints of vending. So we've, we've tried in creative ways to explain and educate folks about how we're doing and how we're doing something differently in a simple format, but it, it is hard. It's a, it's a long form yeah. uh, to get them off. of. You're, you're uh, creating a new category, which is always tough, right? That's yeah. Uh, yeah. You so know, are, yeah. Are you U S only North America only or, or all over the world at this point? So we're, we're currently just based in the U S um, we could go anywhere in the world because the internet can go anywhere in the world. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, by using zebra that's allowed us to, we can get our access to hardware anywhere either. So, We've um, we've definitely explored a couple opportunities in Europe. Um, we looked early on at an opportunity in China. Um, decided not to do the China one because we're scared about just losing control of everything in China. Um, so yeah, the simple answer is right now it's in the U.S., but we can go anywhere. So let's talk about you know we're we're kind of getting towards the end here. What what is that cultural signal to you? You know, you seem to have a really good pulse on this because you you have you, you have your family business. You talked all you're at the conferences. You see these huge ranges, and we talked about like there's the Grangers of the world, and Granger invested millions in e-commerce like 10, 15 years ago. Because I mm-hmm. actually know some of the guys that built some of that stuff. They're like our you know competitors that we looked up to when I started the company, and they were like way ahead of us, and they were getting those contracts right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've grown up a little bit, but those Grangers, those guys have already spent millions on you know, SAP Hybris or whatever, Magento, and they're like super far along. Like if you look at Granger, I looked on LinkedIn, they have like e-commerce analytics specialists. Like they have all these like specialized people and it's mm-hmm. pretty, pretty sophisticated uh, for, for B2B. And then, you know, you go down to more of the mid-level guys and then you have, you know, your mom and pop, you know, mom and pop shops, like, like basically your, what your family mm-hmm. um, is doing. So where, what, I mean, I know there's no exact rule, right? Like, and I don't think, it's, it's everyone should take the decision personally and figure it out for themselves. But like, what kind of things would you say are the indicators that it's like, Hey, you still have time. You can, you know, level up, go all in on e-commerce, spend more money, figure out e-commerce or, Hey, maybe take a step back and spend, you know, invest on selling to Amazon marketplace or shelf aware or going like kind of a different route because it's probably going to be too hard for you to build your own, there's a big difference between building your own e-commerce and selling through other yes. channels, right? right? So, yeah, that, that process of, um, and I don't want to, this isn't, I'm not trying to confuse anybody, but the company I'm a shelf aware, but I was going to say the process of self-awareness um, as, as a small business is very important. You have to be really honest with your ownership and management and your company culture and do a self-assessment. You, you walk in and you're going to look at, basically key attributes of a distributor and what makes them digital or not. And if you're an analog distributor, meaning you don't have a strong handle on your data, you don't have anybody um, on payroll that can manipulate your data. um, You don't have any integration experience with other platforms or third parties. Then I don't think you're wired or adept to pursue an e-com solution. You better look elsewhere. Um, I, I do think that I've said this before that small business is the new big business. And, and a lot of that is because of 
the extremely tangible uh, hardware and software that's just sitting out there from third parties that you can grab a hold of and run really fast. And as a small company, you're much more nimble. You can make quick pivots and changes if you decide to do so. Uh, just as long as your management and your your ownership is willing to get their hands, their personal hands dirty in the process as well. Because I think that's that's what it takes on a, on a small to medium-sized business is executives have to have the mindset and they have to be prepared to jump in the trenches with everybody else uh, to make these quick changes and to adopt new platforms and systems. But I, I teach that that small companies like our family business can do incredible things in just the course of a couple of years. Uh, and we can do those things because the landscape is such that that we can move quickly. You have the cloud environment now with um, the Google Cloud. Um, Amazon's got AWS. AWS, yeah, yeah. We got a lot of stuff on AWS. <laughs> Microsoft Azure. It's just yeah. these environments that that are like kind of pre-made. They're set up for you to succeed quickly. You don't have to build all the pieces of your backend and front end like you did before. Uh, we've leveraged mobile apps, which are extremely convenient and super fast to create like great value-added service for user interfaces quickly and they're easy to maintain over a long term. Um, and I, I teach and talk about using pieces of hardware that are also like set up for you to manipulate and customize like Raspberry Pis and other mini computers that um, are, are ready to just plug in so you can make an IOT device quickly. That's how we, we did our smart counting scale was we threw a Raspberry Pi into an old stupid counting scale and made it made it smart instantly. Um, so I don't think it's too late for small businesses to to act like a big business, but if you're not already down the digital road, you have a lot of catching up to do, and it's not impossible. It's just it's just a big undertaking, and it starts at the top. Yeah, I think like what you said is really important about how you need someone internally that understands this, that can manage third parties. Like you can't just outsource everything to Trellis. Like when I when I'm I've gotten way more careful about who we work with at Trellis because I'm like. Well, who, who's going to be managing? Like, if we can't just like fix all their problems, right? We can augment. We can we can make maybe your guys. Let's use you an example. Like, we could probably make you guys better developers by helping your developers, right? But like, we there's going to be things that you guys need to do. You got like you said, you need to know the data really well. Like, we're not we're not masters of your data, and so I mean, I was talking to a billion dollar distributor, and they're trying to you know level up, and and they have all these people trying to figure out. They don't have one single developer, no one technical that actually knows how all this stuff works. So we're poking so many holes in all their problems on the technical side. And it's like, they don't have one, like, you know, I guess they, I think they do have some technical people, but they're maybe too far deep into the ERP, the back office side, and not really thinking about the front facing e-commerce. You know what I mean? It's just a different yeah. world in some ways. So it's yeah. like, you're right. They, they, the small business can move forward, but like that cultural investment, you have to be really honest about like, what, what is that? You know, do you, who are the people that you need? And I mean, are those you, salaries you, do, you can you afford do, yeah. or? Yeah. I, I, I think our, our, we got really lucky or blessed or however you want to say it, that, that um, my brother-in-laws and I were willing to do what we did, which was get our hands messy, you know, not just sit back and collect a check. And then, we also got lucky because from a family business perspective, perspective, it's it's rare to have a founder of a company who's going to be willing to let go of the reins as much as my dad did. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, and there was certainly some friction like early on, but you have to understand, like we took his business and just started tearing it apart. It was a very visceral, <laughs> like emotional. Uh, I mean, we had like, um, we had like, I think we had 10 or 11 different objectives that we laid out on a whiteboard for him and he freaked out and we had this we call it Armageddon now, but we had this moment where we almost all quit because he was unwilling to make these 10 changes we thought were necessary to bring, bring this company into the 21st century. Um, so it, it's, um, I just keep kind of reiterating this. If you don't have like complete buy-in from the people at the top that own that company and that manage that company, if they're not completely hundred percent on board committed with their own sweat, blood and tears and emotions to, to make this quick uh, change, it's not going to go well. Uh, and so for Trellis to be successful as a third party, you have to have a willing dance partner who knows their company's data intimately. They have the capacity and desire to optimize um, high levels of internal efficiencies, of course, are help, helpful. And that comes through an innovation process that they probably started before even in, engaging. Yeah. With and honestly, I think uh, it's it's funny that you say that, like the more success we're having, it's like, I almost feel like if we can't talk to the leadership team, we probably shouldn't work with them. Like if they're Forget like, it. oh, just talk to the man marketing guy or the, 
you know, some lower level people, if we're not talking to the ownership and they're not serious about it, it's just like, probably, we probably should probably, it's not going to (laughs) work. I don't think so. I mean, I don't think so. I think that was a secret to our success. Um, and, and how we were able to do it so quickly was you had, you had, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll echo that. I mean, I've, uh, you know, I've had a, a long, a long ish career at this point. And I was in one family business where the, like the older generation was handing it off to the younger generation. And I was actually brought in to be the peacekeeper, you know, because everyone was fighting with each other and it was crazy and it was awful. And I was like the boss of two brothers, which was just like the worst possible decision. They should have mm-hmm. never done that. I had to leave. It was just like mayhem. And they, it was a disaster, right? Another family business that, you know, the older generation was handing it to the younger and it was fantastic. I mean, they really, they understood that they had to move forward. They understood they had to make tough decisions. They weren't going to do things in the old way. And that business today is what a hundred and something years old. And and it's thriving, you know, and, and it's great to see that, right? I mean, some of those businesses made it, you know, they actually made it and they just realized you had to keep moving and thinking. So I had a question kind of related to that. I, I You know, what are you thinking about? It's not the next generation because that's like way too soon to ask that of you guys. But, you know, what are you thinking you're, you're looking toward for the next three years, five years? What are you thinking about for your business? Like uh, just capturing more of the U.S. market, getting into other markets, you know, what sort of things are you thinking? So my brothers and I now at this point are, are pretty, we're pretty sure that the future for independent suppliers is only going to be bright to the extent that we collaborate with other product vertical suppliers. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that is, um, you know, Isaiah mentioned Granger earlier, Granger, Fastenal, MSC, Worth, these these giants have gotten so giant, so big that for for us little guys to survive and thrive, and well, not just survive, but to thrive, we need to band together. And it's going to be through collaborative kind of marketplace approaches, where you have a maybe a selection of of independent niche uh, suppliers, family businesses, like you referenced, with generations of experience uh, in particular product verticals. That, that work together to provide some of the industry's largest consumers, because there's certainly tons of consolidation on, on the consumer side of things too, with the giant complexity of product they demand and their inbound supply chain, um, but with the individual expertise. So that's what Shelfware is driving towards, um, is that collective approach where we're trying to onboard multiple product vertical suppliers and have them work together to collectively supply some of the industry's larger consumers everything they need in a one-stop omni-channel um, that's digitized. So I think that's the future. And what that means for my my brothers that still run the O-ring company is they're going to have to be open to collaboration. People sure. are going to have to be less scared of um, networking and sharing data. And you certainly can't keep your head down. You need to get out there and mix it up with uh, other companies if, if we're going to if we're going to thrive more partnerships, almost more of this strategic yeah. partnerships. Yeah. yeah. You know, I only have one other question for you. That has nothing to do with the business. So were you named after Lincoln's vice president? I was not. Um, <laughs> I don't believe I was a very common name. Yes. And not a great president either. No, you know, I, 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 when I see names that match the names of, of, you know, somewhat famous people, I've asked people and one time, I got a uh, President Tyler's descendant. So I was like, oh my God, it was mm-hmm. right. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> Only one time ever has it happened. So nope. just thought I'd throw it out there. I guess it just had a good ring to it. So they just- <laughs> Exactly. It does have a great ring to it. But it's amazing to see what you guys are doing. I think uh, it's awesome to see someone, you know, bringing SaaS, they said a, a modern technology to kind of these older school businesses. I mean, there are obviously a lot of SaaS B2B tech out there, but really bringing it to like the physical side you're you're kind of like bringing it yeah there's a hardware these, component yeah we're shash you got to put yeah. an h in there s-h-a-a-s <laughs> shash it's iot it's, it was iot SaaS. isn't that isn't that internet of yeah, things yeah. yeah that's like the cool right you know yeah. the, the consumer tech so you see that a lot nowadays with these like new e-commerce companies that are iot but it's mostly consumer it's like a little device and then Mm-hmm. Little app that goes with it, so it, you're, it makes a lot of sense that this sh- should be coming to be more to B two B. Like, why mm-hmm. why are we not more IoT and B two B? Right. So, well, so I our, guess yeah. Oh, I was just going to ask a, one other quick question: Are RFID RFID tags 
uh, are they sustainable? Are they recyclable? I mean, that's sort of a, something I've wondered because they're, you know, I've seen them for years, but I just don't know. Yeah, the um, we couldn't have done what we've done without the RFID industry making huge strides when it comes to uh, the cost of the tags, the ease to manufacture the tags, and certainly the sustainability of the tags. They're getting much more simple, and there are talks on the horizon of a chipless tag. So it'd be an RFID tag that's chipless, cool. uh, which would be a great wow. innovation. Uh, drive Absolutely. the cost of the tag down and make it much more sustainable. You don't need the all the energy that goes into making chips uh, for an RFID approach. The tags we're using today are um, really inexpensive. So the inlay we have is about a nickel. Um, for the inlay and that gets um, cheaper as you go up in volumes and cheaper as time goes by. So it used to be 50 cents. So we've come a long way mm-hmm. um, from where we used to be. And and really the other thing that's driven the innovation in the RFID space is just eased and code. Uh, the Zebra printers that we're using now, and there's other other printers like Printronics and brands like that and Avery that, that do a good job, um, not just printing and encoding these smart labels, but then verifying that they encoded correctly. So you don't have any concerns. Um, and that's what you really had to have. So yeah, it's, um, it's a fascinating industry. It's certainly, an, it's an old industry. It's been around for old, old tech and been around for a long, long time. And you're starting mm-hmm. to see it pop up more and more and more in the consumer space from retail. You, you talked about people tracking clothing and, and gift sure. items. It's very popular in the retail marketplace. So um, yeah, I think it is sustainable and it's definitely scalable and it's going to continue to get even more appetizing to commodity-based product tracking. So, so I'm going to ask you one last question and cause my, my, uh, and I think it, it, I'm really glad I even found out that you exist. I think the future of, of commerce is like basically all digitally enabled. So it's, you know, e-commerce online, you're either, you know, buying it yourself very easy, you know, one-click checkout, these fast shipping times, this basically like moving to the Uber experience for almost everything or the Amazon Go. I still think that Amazon Go, the shelf aware has a really important place to play in the future because, you know, it is convenient to be able to go somewhere physically and pick it out, but it's not convenient to wait in line. <laughs> to me, like waiting in line is so archaic, you know, you have self-checkout, but like, we're, we got to be getting closer to this pretty autonomous level where it's like, really, you shouldn't be waiting online or you shouldn't be waiting on the phone and you shouldn't be waiting on email to buy things anymore. Do you, do you, do you get what I'm saying? And where, when do you think that kind of like autonomous delivery of, of services and goods is, you think we're three years out, five years out, 10 years out? I mean, it's going to be a while for like everything to to move in that direction, but whatever, uh, that's a hard one. Uh, whatever time frame you put on it in the industrial marketplace, my experience says double it. So yeah, du- double. <laughs> <laughs> maybe consumer it's like five years in, yeah. and, and we'll invite you back 10. in 2030. <laughs> yeah. 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 So <laughs> I, I think that's a tough one in the industrial space. And if you flip it to the consumer space, it's a much safer guess. I would say in the consumer space, you're just a year or two away from that. And I say that with confidence because uh, Amazon Go is actually rebranded and licensing the system to independent convenience store owners. And so, sure. if you happen to own a gas station and and you don't want to have clerks and you know in their checking, I was wondering out. that. Yeah, yeah I no, was wondering that. Completely rebranded, and I, I I should know the branding. I think it's I think it's called Just Go. Oh. I should start selling that. <laughs> yeah, I no, like a... yeah. Well, you should buy a convenience <laughs> store. Yeah, I know people already <laughs> selling yeah. it, actually. So, yeah, it's pretty yeah. great. But, like, yeah, I, so... I mean, it's probably only a matter of time that, you know, uh, Shopify, Shopify POS, and then Shopify POS Go, you mm-hmm. know, like, uh, they'll probably white label it, and then you can yep. have it all integrated. That's, it's got to be soon, right? With like, Amazon like... Go and the Just Go system, I, think I might be butchering that. I, I don't know what they private brand or white labeled it to, but it's it's a little more agnostic. It'll go into any convenience store. They install their series of Amazon Go really relies on on vision systems. So they install a series of cameras in your yep. in your convenience store as it sits today. They retrofit it, walk away, and you're you're online. And consumers then walk in your front door of your you know your own Quickie Mart in in your local uh, town, and you can walk in, grab what you need, and and leave. So I, I think it's your Simpsons reference. Your I wonder Mart. if it might even Quickie reduce Mart, yeah. theft <laughs> because it like forces people to pay like. 
you know, you have these like crazy stories of like people just like stealing everything from Walgreens and they have to close. Not anymore. Yeah. Now it's like, well, now you store. just paid for everything. It's all on your credit card. You, yeah. You have you like a 5,000. <laughs> that's right. The, the consumer version, you scan your credit card and that's how it identifies you. And you walk around and you can't really steal anything because every camera, there's a hundred cameras watching every move you make. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the first time I shopped at an Amazon Go was already, I, I shopped at a trade show like six or seven years ago. And then yeah. they opened up one in New York City across from Macy's Herald Square probably four years ago. I mean, so it's been years of that technology yeah. out in the world. So yeah. I'm so glad that finally they're they're getting it out and spreading it even more. Yeah, and RFID adoption is going to help. And retailers are adopting uh, passive RFIDs that are getting embedded in their clothing and, and consumer goods like at an alarming rate. And they're doing it for inventory tracking purposes, but soon enough, they'll be able to combine that with the automated POS systems to also yeah. add another la layer of like security to, hey, this person actually pulled these products off the shelf. Yeah. The cart contains 15 items. I, I just bought this from Marshalls and like, it's always frustrating. Like they can have like a long line. I'm like, ah, like, like I, already, I know what I want. Like, can I just, uh -huh. can I just go? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're there. We're there for retail. You're going to see like really quick adoption towards, um, towards automated POS systems for the industrial space. It's going to take a while longer, mainly because the industrial marketplace just got so left behind in the infrastructure race. So yeah. lots of manufacturers don't have the infrastructure that they need to adopt these systems. So we'll get there. Well, this was amazing. Uh, I really appreciate this, Andrew. We'll have to have you back. Let's let's have you back, and then you can tell us your updated prediction, and we'll see. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> that would be great. I'd love to come back and talk to you guys. It's a fascinating world we live in. Uh, it's very chaotic, and and there's bright a bright future for the U.S. manufacturing space as we start to reshore some of the stuff we outsourced. Yes, when yeah. I was a kid. So it's coming back. So That's we're amazing. here at a good time. Yeah, it is amazing. Thanks, thanks for another great episode of uh, Hard Truth about B two B commerce. You are welcome. Thank you for having Thank me. You. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye, guys.